I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. You're listening to Muses and Stuff. This is the podcast that's all about the dolls. They were the groupies, the wives, the girlfriends, and the muses who played such a huge role in rock and roll history by simply being themselves. They were sweet, sexy, brave, and powerful. They went after what and who they wanted, and they made no apologies. We are your hosts, Shanti and Lynx. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Muses and Stuff. I'm sitting here with Lynx, kind of, but she's kind of. but she's not actually sitting here beside me, unfortunately. So I'm uh, Lynx, and I we've been recording these intros to these episodes, and. It was going to be no different for our interview, our conversation with Denise Donlin, the conversation that you are about to hear. So usually we record our intros after we do the episodes, so still fresh in our minds and, you know, Lynx can some- and I can sometimes only get together once a week, unfortunately. So we do the intros then, but um, we had to put it off. We had to put off doing the intro. Isn't that right, Lynx? Yes, but for very good reason. So if it sounds like Lynx's voice is coming out of a, a Bose speaker, no, it's a Head Rush speaker. It's because she is. We were going to Skype, and that wasn't working. So I was like, you know what? I'm a professional problem solver. Let me solve this problem. And uh, so we came up with a creative solution. So the sound quality isn't going to be the greatest in this intro, but... Yeah, but it's just for the intro. Don't worry. The sound quality is great for the rest of the episode and you know i think it's just like denise would be proud of us for coming up with this 
creative solution sure. because that's because that's what she does. Like she's the exactly. kind of woman she gets shit done. If there's a problem, then she just solves it. You know, if there's like a hundred and seventy one, what is it, thousand dollar problem? <laughs> What was million it? Dollars. Million, million dollar problem. Then she can solve it. So, um, yeah. So we've got that interview coming up for you soon, and I'm going to give you a real proper Denise Donlin um, description in just a moment. But links, I want you to tell the people how is Nick Cave. Oh my god, it was incredible. I got to see him twice, and I took my dad to one, and he just loved it. If you've seen Nick Cave, everyone knows that there's no other performer like him. He's just incredible. And the best way that I can think to describe it is that he's like the preacher and like we're all just his disciples, like following him. And it's it's unbelievable. And I happen to be up in the balcony in the first row had the perfect view uh, on the stage and watching it the whole time. And uh, at one point, Nick Cave actually came off stage and walked on the chairs, like through the crowd. And uh, he stopped and he uh, sang down to this woman and she was holding him. And I posted the photo on our Instagram and uh, I was hoping by hashtagging it that woman would find it, and she did. And uh, I got a message from her, and I was able to send her the photos and a couple others I took. And she said that she actually uh, is a fan of the podcast. And I thought, like, how amazing That's was it? That's so cool. People, right? Out of all the people there, like a sold-out show, like 2,600 people, someone who... Uh, loves groupiedom and she mentioned loving Pamela DeBar and it was so fitting. So and I'm she so was... glad she got to experience uh, that moment with Nick as well because we all know like how amazing that feels. So. Yeah. Um, well, so she was already a listener. That's really, really cool. Mm-hmm. We... And you had an amazing weekend too. Oh yeah, I went to a field trip and if people were following us on our Instagram stories, they could, uh, well, I I took them backstage with me and side stage for Broken Social Scene. So that was kind of fun to just make little stories about that because it was a a great festival and the bands were amazing. People were amazing and I got a sunburn. (laughs) (laughs) The first one of the season. That's right. Um, so we actually didn't explain yet why we had to skip out of the intro and just hit yeah. sort of save on the podcast and put the computer down and just run out of the house. Mm-hmm. Well, if interviewing Denise wasn't incredible enough, after we completed the interview, Denise was like, hey, you up for a party? <laughs> and we were like, hell yeah, we are. <laughs> yeah, so she was she invited us along with her to a very magical place, a very jazzy and peaceful place that I think might be heaven. Really? Is that where we went last night, Lynx? Do we go to heaven? <laughs> I just felt like it. Um, I wrote my friend on the way home, like I, I am floating home right now. Just, 
it felt like we were up in the clouds for sure. Um, we were dancing in the street afterwards, and when you <laughs> when you walked away, somebody in a car across the street went, "Hey, nice dancing!" <laughs> I went, "Thank you." Um, yeah, so we met so many amazing and inspiring women that I just so you know you asked Denise at the end of the interview like what women can do for each other, and so first of all she tells us, and then second of all she's just like shows us she's like you know what you want to know the answer to that question let me show you let's go girls and we're like okay um so she's like she's everything she wears so many different hats she's like you know I know that we were both nervous for this interview but then she makes you feel so at ease because she's a friend and a sister and a that cool aunt and like my my whole uh attitude like changed like all the nerves just like flew out of me just the minute she she said like hey how's it going you know and I felt yeah I felt so present with her because I we forgot to take a pic like I was looking at her and you and you guys talking and I wanted to take a photo but I didn't want to distract you and lose your train of thought but we're so like present in the moment that I ended up forgetting about the photo and we didn't get one until later that night but it was a really really special moment and anyways I'm really excited about this interview and I hope that people really like it yeah, me too. Uh, and I hope that we get to go back to heaven one day. Yeah, for real. That was just amazing. And Denise, thank you so much for coming on and being so kind and welcoming to us. And yeah, this whole experience has been magical. And I'm excited for everyone to hear the interview because we really, we got deep and it's, it's, a, it's a great one. Mm. Yes. Okay, so I'm going to read Denise's uh, book sleeve, and it explains in such great, I don't know, I'm I'm sorry, I'm tired. I'm like, what are words right now? Um, Yeah, just like a lot of her accomplishments, besides being just an incredibly kind and passionate and caring, amazing, strong, empowering woman. And beautiful. Oh, my God. She's beautiful. I know, she's gorgeous. Okay. I'm going to put the speaker down, and I'm going to use my other hand to Do grab it. the book. Okay, Link, so I'm putting <laughs> you down. Denise Donlin is one of Canada's most successful broadcasters and corporate leaders. She has been a co-host and producer of The New Music, director of programming, and VP and general manager of Much Music and City TV, president of Sony Music Canada, general manager and executive director of CBC English Radio, and co-producer and co-host of The Zoomer. She has also devoted herself to numerous charitable initiatives, working with organizations such as War Child Canada, Music Counts, and the Clinton-Giostra Enterprise Partnership. She sits on a number of boards and has been honored with the Humanitarian Spirit Award and the Trailblazer Award at Canadian Music Week. Woman of the Year from Canadian Women in Communications, Woman of Vision from Wired Women, and was inducted in the Broadcast Hall of Fame. She is a fellow of the Royal Conservatory of Music and a member of the Order of Canada. Our friend Eric Alper says, I've long recognized Denise Donlin as a trailblazer in the Canadian cultural industries as a corporate leader, a broadcaster, a feminist, and a social activist. One of Canada's most celebrated and dynamic citizens, her just-released memoir, Fearless as Possible, Under the Circumstances, is one of the greatest books I've ever read. And we agree. 
Enjoy the episode. This episode is brought to you by Electrified Porcupine. Electrified Porcupine is a pretty kick-ass website where you can go and read and learn all about music, gaming, wrestling, retro, TV, movies, cartoons, and collectible toys. So go to electrifiedporcupine.com and have a look around. See what you like. We are sitting here today. We have the privilege and the, we're so excited to be sitting here today. So excited. I'm excited. With Denise Donlin, or as I've been calling her, Denise freaking Donlin. <laughs> I'll take that. Thank you so much. This is, again, such an honor. Oh, it's so my pleasure. Well. I love your energy of both of you. Thank you. <laughs> Um, thank you so much for coming, and thank you for coming in this kind of treacherous Toronto weather. Nasty kind of day. But that's okay. It's warm and cozy here. Yes, it mm. certainly is. Mm. So speaking of days, we'll just start with our first question for you, a little bit of a warm-up. Describe your perfect day. <gasps> oh, my perfect day is waking up rested um, and having some Italian coffee, you know, those one of those very old Italian coffee makers. And then hopefully having time to read the newspaper, which is a massive luxury. Uh, and then jumping in the car and heading to the cottage with tunes blasting all the way. <laughs> and then when we get to the cottage, have a big swim and wash the city off my body. And then maybe a kayak and then a barbecue and hopefully a glass of wine with some friends. And then some more music and probably a good book and then go to sleep. Sounds Dude, blissful. Amazing day, yeah. Good answer. <laughs> I want to do answer. that on Friday. <laughs> oh, good. I'm from uh, northern Ontario, so I'm very much uh, an outdoors, outdoorsy country, swimming in lakes, swim, swimming in rivers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was my my motto when I finished the book. It was like, okay, you must spend more time outdoors. And then I was surprised to read that Hillary Clinton said the same thing. What are you going to do now? Spend more time outdoors. Oh. Out of a pantsuit in a windowless, airless conference room is great. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everybody should spend more time outdoors. <laughs> so another question for you. We're going to ask you to think back a little bit. When you were 13 years old, and speaking of music or, you know, I guess it could be anything, what posters did you have up on your bedroom wall? <laughs> I had none. Oh, I know. We we lived in a little bungalow in the east end of Toronto, and my bedroom had this kind of wooden panel in it, and it was against the law to put any holes in that wood panel. It, it was kind of really naughty wood, too, so sometimes at night the shadows had hit it weird, and I'd see strange faces, scary faces in the walls Aww. as well. But when I got to university, I made up for lost time and plastered my room with posters, mostly environmental activism posters. Um, but I remember one record that was really popular at the time, in my group anyway, because I lived with a bunch of, you know, tree huggers. I was the closet carnivore in my house of vegetarians. <laughs> and it was, uh, it was the Muse concerts. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> concerts for a non-nuclear future. So this is this triple album with uh, Jackson Brown and Crosby, Stills and Nash and, you know, the Doobie Brothers and Poco and Bonnie Raitt and John Prine and Bruce Springsteen. It's just one of the best live albums you will ever hear. Partly because 
you know, the, the mission spoke to me, but also those beautiful voices all coming together. It was, you know, one of the first concerts that actually clued into me that the whole idea about music plus meaning equals magic. That's where it started. I'm actually seeing Bonnie Wright on Friday. Oh, she's fantastic. She? She's really great. So yeah. Uh, so you were a pioneer in your field, and because of that, you didn't grow up like we did, looking up to women like you. Who were your uh, feminist icons, or who are your feminist icons? Well, like, when I was a, when I was young, it would have been my mom. You know, my mom. I mean, her background is practically Dickensian, right? She grew up as an orphan in England and, you know, deprived of, of food and, and certainly love. And so when she graduated, the evil stepfather, who she didn't think she had anymore, came and, and made, instead of a scholarship, made her go work for the family as a laundress. So for me, she would always say, the world is your oyster, my dear, and encourage me to sort of grab a hold of opportunities because she never had them. So in the early days, she would have been my feminist mentor. Um, later on, it was a lot of artists, Joni Mitchell and, you know, Chrissy Hind and, and, and Jeanette Napolitano from Concrete Blonde. I always thought she was <laughs> such a badass. Um, and then later I got more and more engaged in, in political feminists. So when I go to Ottawa every year, and there's one in Calgary too, there's a statue of these five women called the Famous Five, Emily Murphy, etc. And they were the ones who campaigned in 1928 or 29. It was, just, it was the year my mom was born. So one generation, those were the five uh, women who made, uh, five ladies who made women quote, persons under the law in Canada. That's right, yep. Yeah, so they're, they're one of my feminist icons now. Whenever I go to Ottawa, I go and I walk to the hill like a pilgrimage and I thank the famous five. Pay your respects. Mm-hmm, Because mm-hmm. we still got a long way to go. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> so your book is so much more than just a memoir. It's the story it's everything yeah <laughs> it's kind of goofy it's the story of much music it's a feminist manifesto it's a guide to successful event planning and fundraising it's a very detailed look at the business side of the music industry and it's filled with fun memories with amazing talented people it's so funny it's, <laughs> i'm glad it, you found it funny it's everything it's everything <laughs> Uh, was that always the original intention, or did this just happen naturally? No, the original intention was sort of ego-driven, because a publisher approached me and said, you should write a book. And of course, I was like, of course I should write a book. <laughs> <laughs> you should beware of things that are led purely by your ego. Um, and so I thought, well, it, it should just be about celebrity stories, lots of bold-faced names, and maybe, you know, my son might want to find out one day what really happened on the White Snake 1984 <laughs> slided-in tour of Europe. <laughs> up. Um, so I started writing celebrity stories, but it became hollow. It became, it was like, oh, who cares about my celebrity stories, really? So that I started to think about more thematically, more, you know, okay, the stories had to be funny, or they had to teach me something, or hopefully they had to teach the reader something. And then these themes started to, to develop of feminism, of, of being a lady leader in male-dominated in, uh, industries, of humanitarianism and, and philanthropy. And so it became a little bit more uh, than what I intended at the beginning. It had to be about something. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so good. Doesn't that, I mean, I don't 
think that I can compare myself to you in any way, but I mean, that's not the right way to word it. No, you guys are you're so much more entrepreneurial than I was as a young girl. Kind you are. of how the podcast started. Mm. It started with stories about okay, who are these the these stories of these these rock stars like in the Canadian music scene that we went and did this with and that I had a fun time with and we got to go out and tour with. And then it became so much more than that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so even though we're saying like our podcast is about legendary music muses and super groupies, it's like it's so not just about it's that so more, anymore. Yeah. That's or fantastic. Even if it ever though. really was. Yeah. Because yeah. as yeah. long as you're curious and it broadens your interest, mm-hmm. then uh, then it's going to have legacy, right? Yeah. Have real legs for and, you and the, and the audience. Exactly. And so many of these women like are layered they they all have amazing stories and they have amazing stories within their amazing story Mm. so you cover so much territory and you like you learn so many new things and that makes you discover other people and it's it's just like a web of (laughs) exactly growing growing, keep at it and then figure out how to get paid for it yeah (laughs) (laughs) oh i like yeah (laughs) gotcha if you do what you love hopefully you can we first saw you speak at Canadian Music Week uh, not too long ago, mm-hmm. and that was wonderful. And we also loved, in your book, The Art of the Interview. Mm-hmm. Um, that really helped us because it, the timing was perfect because we'd really just started interviewing people because yeah. for the most part it be, had just been you and I. Just discussion more, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so now that we're interviewing, I just want to say thank you for those tips. <laughs> They're <laughs> really helpful. hope they were useful. Mm-hmm. Very much and at the end of your panel, there was a question period. Mm-hmm. And so we almost asked a question, but instead we were just furiously writing notes. Um, <laughs> but we, we thought about asking the question about the representation of women on panels at music festivals. Mm-hmm. And even in terms of Canadian Music Week's uh, panel, What Women Want, that was led by a group of men. Yeah. We no were... women on that panel, right? Right. I know. Odd. Odd. And uh, not very thoughtful. Mm -hmm. Right. But we didn't ask that question. And so my question for you now, is there a fine line between a foolish question and a fearless one? (laughs) I think there aren't really any foolish questions. The only foolish question is if it reveals that you haven't done your homework, right? Mm -hmm. If you ask a, a, a foolish question that is the person you're asking it of just thinks, well, did you read the book? Did you listen to the record? Did you look up my biography? Uh, that's a foolish question. Any other question, which is which you are finding, you know, curious and, and that you're wondering about, then there's a pretty good chance that other people are going to be wondering about that question too. So I would just go be fearless. But I hear what you're saying. It's hard. Even you know, I public speak, I've been behind the mic and for years and years and years. But if it's a conference and there's 400 people sitting in the audience and I think, oh, should I ask that question? I really want to ask that question. Maybe people would think I'm stupid if I ask that question. And then, and you know, even when I'm standing at the microphone, my heart's pounding, right? Um, so it's okay to be nervous, I think. Um, also because it makes you uh, more prepared, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. If you're not you. nervous, you're probably just arrogant. Yeah. <laughs> mm. That's uh, that's good because 
I was feeling the nerves earlier. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I've been I've I've been rolling around this crystal in my hand for the past uh, probably hour. I think I can maybe put it down now. But you know what? The art of the interview in the book, there was I think ten or eleven tips, and the really the reason I did it was because I was trying to find a way to organize what I thought were some pretty fun stories, mm-hmm. and also because I was learning how to do it as I went along. Nobody trained any of us mm-hmm. in those days. They were just like, "Here's your camera and a microphone. Off you go." And so yet you do learn it. And what I found was the biggest flaw was not foolish questions necessarily, but a, a disrespect uh, of the artist by not doing her homework and an arrogance on, on, the, on the part of the reporter who thought that perhaps they were better or more famous or more worthy of the airtime mm-hmm. than their subject. And I always thought we were just vehicles for the subject at the end of the day. Um, and we gained a real reputation for, for, for being smart interviewers and for actually taking, you know, the interview into a world of substance versus just style, right? Exactly. Because it all is all about the, what are you wearing now? Nobody asks a decent question anymore. Well, that yeah. goes perfect into my next question. Um, we grew up watching much music and obviously the great variety of music is something I, we treasure so much. But what really stands out in my memory is uh, the unbelievable quality of programming you guys had. Mm. Um, I remember staying up late and watching the Too Much for Much, yeah. and, you know, learning about that world and seeing like the VJs and your guests and audience members like all d- discussing content on TV. Mm-hmm. And I remember going downtown for intermittent interactives and you know getting to look through the window and you see a star and <laughs> I'm sorry I would have given you a wristband had I known you were there we came for a grade 8 grad trip and it was a huge deal you know six hours on yeah. a bus and we got a tour of much music and it was so much fun everybody looked like that they were having a great time we felt welcome as kids being there That's great. the VJs would jump out put their arms around mm-hmm. us we got mm-hmm. pictures with Rick Campanelli and George Stoffelopoulos <laughs> and all the girls were going crazy for George and uh, yeah. I couldn't believe it watching it being from a small town and, and watching right it and there feeling like oh it's so unbelievable what they're doing and then mm-hmm. actually being there and it was yeah. a really special moment well that was the great thing about much at the beginning because it really was the camelot right mm-hmm. it was the first time we had a national conversation and so artists who could be famous in you know red deer moose jar vancouver you know had to get in the bus and travel and travel and and uh and hone their craft across this great country with a small population so as soon as much launched it was like you know people could see prince you know uh, Prince, yeah, <laughs> Prince, and Boy George, and, you know, they could see people wearing un- crazy clothes and singing about subjects that they may not have thought about before, and so all it was such a powerful time for music videos, so, I mean, you mentioned Too Much for Much, mm-hmm. and for me, that whole drive for relevance piece on much music was well it's what maybe get up in the morning you know we could play music videos all day but I was so interested in inviting the audience in and having a dialogue because they saw the station as their station and so it's like okay let's deconstruct these videos you know is that dancer wearing that because she's emancipated or because she's exploited is um you know what are they actually saying with these violent images is it something about society that we need to learn or are they just doing it for the attention so the whole idea of deconstructing those images and those lyrics 
I think was really important for, you know, for young people um, forming their own opinions about who we are going to be as people uh, in part of a democracy. So that that was the part. I hope you didn't see the too much for much with the nine inch nails where I, have I, seen where I stopped I totally it. I totally did. Oh my. <laughs> I would have been so burned at the stake for doing that now when I got cold feet. That one's hard to forget once you've seen it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oof. Uh, and mm. one important thing also um, for any listeners who are in the States and don't know, a huge difference that says it re- all really is MTV is there in Times Square, but it's a couple levels up. It's and, on the second floor. Yeah, and yeah. here's much music, and it's just it's you walk by it every day. It's right there, and you've you've got the windows open so people can just you know look in and be a part mm-hmm. of it. But the podcast too was an exploration of fandom and the people who were going to the concerts mm-hmm. and acknowledging them and their voices and their feelings because. Rock and roll does not work with just the artists either. Right. It's not one to many. It has to be a give and take, Mm -hmm. right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. So kind of shedding light on the people who are going to the concerts too, I just Mm -hmm. made the connection that Mm -hmm. I've never like Mm -hmm. really made before, but it's letting them in now Mm -hmm. and having them be a part of the music history too, because you read the books and it's always about, and of course, like the artists are so important. They are the the conduits of the message, um, but it's really the people too that help to bring that to light and to weigh in on things and it's really a back and forth it's yeah, not it's just communication. a one-sided music's about communication yeah. that's all it really is at the end of the day even if it's you know affecting you in your head or in your heart or in your groin <laughs> or in your feet <laughs> there is a call and response going on and that's what makes me and that's what makes it resonate the good one anyway uh one more thing i want to mention talking about much music was your war child specials mm. Um, I, I truly remember watching them and learning, and it was amazing just seeing other parts of the world that I had no idea like these things were going on. It, you guys really opened up a, a lot of uh, eyes mm. of, of like the youth. Well, they opened me up too. I mean, the first time I went to the first War Child trip was really Dr. Samantha Nutt and Eric Hoskins coming into the. In to meet me, and the next thing you knew, I was on a plane to Sierra Leone visiting the amputee camps and the child soldier camps, and, and you know, it was a crazy time because it was May of 2000, and Canada had just been named by the UN as the number one place in the world to live, and Sierra Leone had been named as the bottom, the lowest, the, the, you know, the worst place in the world to live. And I didn't know much about it myself. And the whole idea of blood diamonds and, and how these gangster warlords would be, you know, subjugating and oppressing their own people um, in the name of, of this kind of egregious wealth. Um, and I was nervous. I mean, you know, we were child soldiers. They were eight, nine, and 10 years old. And they'd been filled up with drugs. And they'd been um, you know, oppressed, and just down the street is the amputee camp where women and children and men had their hands and their legs and their noses and their ears cut off. Um, it was a scary place to be, but I found my courage in the bravery of those women and children, particularly, who were, had they didn't have a voice, right? All they wanted to go to, they just wanted to go to school half the time and so you come back from a trip like that and there's another piece of that story in the book that I write about about you know how we almost lost our crew and I thought they were 
they were dead for a day. Um, but you don't come back from one of those trips without, you know, it is a life-changing experience. You, you go out of your comfort zone, you do what you can to help, um, and you really get a sense of what you're made of and what you can uh, handle as a person and also what you're capable of. When you started at Much Music, did you expect to, to go at this route or was this something that sort of just happened along the way it happened because well, I was at the new music for a number of years before I went to before I was offered the director of music programming at much and that you know this idea of uh, I mean it was a time of great artist activism right you know as Sting was in the rainforest and REM's doing Greenpeace and uh, Bob Geldof was doing Live 8 the first time and mm-hmm. you know Bono was yelling at Canadian Prime Ministers well, he's still <laughs> doing that a little um, but the you know Amnesty International and the Conspiracy of Hope and Band-Aid I mean the world was really artists had a lot to say and they were saying it loud and proud and it was really resonating um, with the fans and with the audiences so for me the ability to dive into a subject like apartheid in South Africa because it was Mandela's birthday or because little Stephen had just written a song about not playing Sun City was that was magic for me that was like oh I could be a journalist and dig into these um, issues because the music let me it it opened the door into those things and and so that I that's I love doing that kind of relevant stuff I mean we still had fun and goofed around but you know those our specials with Laurie and with Janelyn White that's what made us um thrilled to be involved in it and also from a just from a business point of view it made the show distinct in the world because we were really the only ones who were doing it with that kind of depth. Um, and so we got access where other uh, people didn't, right? They were like, yeah, we're going to let you talk to Peter Gabriel because he's got something to say and we know that you will, uh, you will receive it. Amazing. So I'm getting all excited and fired up. And, you know, I feel like lately I've been more and more so on the podcast coming out of the closet in the sense of explaining that I am an educator and that I work Mm -hmm. with children. Mm -hmm. So I allude to it, but I don't outright say that because of wanting to keep things separate sometimes. But in this, this kind of journey of speaking our truth and like using our voices like I it's like I can't even keep the two separated anymore because and I don't want to anymore (laughs) and I don't want to be afraid of what might happen if people find out I'm a teacher but I have a podcast where like maybe 20% of the time we talk about sex Mm -hmm. um (laughs) which isn't a bad thing so so I'm I'm moving away from that a little bit and that feels really good but in our classroom this year in our grade six classroom full of 11 and 12 year olds we have been music plus meaning equals magic all year that's how we bonded we started right off the beginning of the year there was the uh the new announcement before canada our school is situated upon traditional territories mm-hmm. we acknowledge the we territories acknowledge that. Yeah, yeah right um <clears throat> so the question was just why are we why are why is this now happening mm-hmm. and so really getting into that 
and really listening to bands like Tribe Called Red and Tani Tikak and the Jerry Cans who live up in Nunavut and have their own mm -hmm. record label and Le Hay Babies who are a French band out in Moncton and following Gord Downey and all these kinds of things. So they're getting really passionate. The students were getting really, really passionate over these things, which was fantastic. But it's almost hard for them like to find that empathy or connection with people that in, in other countries like around the world because they have like they have they their food it. and their water mm -hmm. and they don't see mm -hmm. it and we can talk about it and we can tell them but we kind of had a breakthrough moment the other day when we were reading a book about Malala and we've talked about Malala a lot mm -hmm. and actually at lunchtime we live streamed when she was in Ottawa right and so all the students honorary Canadian citizen that's right love that the students we ate mm -hmm. lunch in the classroom that day and they realized that they were watching something that was very very important and they were like I'm never gonna forget this and I was like good <gasps> how wonderful well done it was fantastic yeah. uh, girls boys everybody was were there um, oh sorry I should say that anymore we have a student who identifies as, as gender neutral and mm. they came out this year and it was fantastic the, oh, the kids great. were so supportive and they were like let us know what we could do to support you it's great what uh, a wonderful environment it's been a great year wonderful i'm so, <laughs> so pleased to hear that so we had a breakthrough moment where we're sitting in the circle and because we do tons of circles that's pretty much how they learn <laughs> it's not really desk unless unless they Good. choose to go there when yeah. they want to work on their work and kind of be alone. Um, we read the book about Malala and uh, how she just wanted education and she wanted education for girls. And in 2009, when they were trying to take that away, she stood up uh, against that and started writing about it. And so one of my students said, Madame, that's where I was born. I was born in the same place that Malala hmm. was. And I said, why did your parents come here? And she said, well, because they wanted me to have education and to have everything that we have and then we all just kind of took a big breath and went mm -hmm. that could have been you know one of our girls mm -hmm. like so it, it gives them that connection but this but you know where much music was we were able to have that connection and to see what was going on in the age of Netflix and YouTube are our youth getting this same thing well, I think you're, as a teacher, you know, you're correct in steering them towards it because, you know, the the internet is a wonderful thing. I mean, particularly for countries that are developing and, and need access to the outside world, you know, to, to help in all kinds of ways for, for sustainable development and civilization and education. So there there's a wealth of great things. There's also a wealth of crap out there and you know many of the things you know the the clickbait the computer games etc they're designed with capitalism in mind right so they're i always say to my son it's like you know they put heroin in those games right <laughs> because they want you to keep playing and, and it's such it can be such a waste of time so if you are because I, I don't find often that people find their tribe or their community or the things that are passionate for them unless there's some spark that's lit somehow, which you've talked about uh, with Malala or even talking about music and meaning in the classroom. And then they can explore, you know, what it means to be part of that community. They can also, you know, I was I was a little despondent after the after the Women's March. I was very... You know, it was inauguration day, and I and I was just like, "Oh my God, we've got this 
ass in the White House and, you know, I know what his views are on, on sexual freedoms and, and reproductive rights and all of that. And we're going to be cast back into the dark ages. The kids are not happy about it. They're Good. paying attention. I am glad. And so is my son. It's, it's fantastic. Um, because they're in a liberal system, though, that allows them to. They could also be in families similarly in America where everything he says is right and thou shalt not question. And yes, we're members of the NRA, right? So, but during that march, what I was, as I said, I was feeling despondent, but I saw so many women and men and kids marching, you know, to show their voice and to share their voice in a very analog way. We are marching down the streets and we've made signs and we've colored them. But I left that event thinking, you know, there's a lot that's wrong with the world, but never before have we as citizens had so many tools at our fingertips to to agitate and to communicate and to build community and to stand up and protest uh, when we think things are wrong and support things when we think they're right. So there's always a bit of a yin-yang going on. Um, I wish there were more protest songs. I haven't heard the great protest song that's making me rise out of my chair. I mean... I'm with you on that, yeah. You're right about Tanya Tagak, and because in many ways, the First Nations movement um, is in, is our civil rights movement of our time, I think. Um, and Gord Downey, you know, bless his heart. His heart really is as big as his talent. Mm-hmm. Um, to use his time on this planet that he has still with us uh, to use his powers for good, to to stand up and, you know, point at the prime minister and give him an edict um, and to open a window, um, you know, a pop culture window into a period of our past that is so shameful and requires retribution and respect. Um, I mean, we're talking about a culture whose whose music and culture was they were robbed. It's it's egregious, and we have to make amends. So I think there may not be the big protest song, but there are lots of small acts of faith that are happening out there. You know, even World Pride Day used Lorraine Segato's Rise Up as a World Pride Day song. That song's 20, I don't know how many years old it is, but it's still resonating with people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we will hear those songs. There's certainly enough to talk about. I'm sure they're being written right now. <laughs> I sure. hope I mean, so. Father John Misty, for an example, Father has John that, Misty's a great, a great example. Yeah, yeah, and he has that album where, even though it was written a few years ago, it's just, he's just yeah. <laughs> telling it in this mm-hmm. way, you know. And, um, and yeah, I was trying to think of that too. Like, so who are the ones that are that are coming up with these messages and... I mean, I was thinking about, you know, seeing Mac DeMarco not too long ago and his whole album being about like growing up and about his father. And sometimes it's like evaluating like where we came from and who we are and understanding ourselves Mm -hmm. and then realizing that everybody is kind of doing the same thing. Is he the one with that great song about LGBTQ rights and how... I think he was singing about how I mean he's not personally gay, but that it's a it's a human right and standing up for it. I think that's. Him. I don't know if I he was, know. and I didn't know okay. that. I'd be like, good yeah. for you, Matt. Yeah. But we'll we'll we should definitely <laughs> look into that. Sounds like something he would do. Cool. <laughs> uh, one thing I wanted to. Dis- oh no, that was Macklemore and Ryan Lewis. Sorry, like it doesn't oh. sound oh. like Macklemore, but Macklemore. Uh, okay, good. Very clo- close good enough. Know. Okay, good. Know. Oh, I know that song. <laughs> That's Same love, yeah. yeah. Some love. Same love. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's, it's a good yeah, one. Yeah, and a lo- and a really moving video, too. It's, it's like really a rap good. song, and it's nice to hear like a rapper rapping mm-hmm. about equality and gay marriage. Yeah, we can rights. throw that out to listeners, too. Let us know. Who are you listening to that's inspiring, that's got a message, that's got yeah. some meaning? I'd love to hear that. We'd love to hear that. Because, you know... Make a playlist. When hip-hop, when, hip-hop, when rap started, you know, it was, as Chuck D said, sort of the black CNN. It was... Yeah. It was... It had a message. Yeah. But, you know, inner city and poverty and and um, and slavery and Gil Scott Heron and Grandmaster Flash, it was very politicized. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, style over substance again. That's why I think that, you know, your references to Tanya Tagak um, and Tribe Called Red, I mean, they're doing what hip-hop was doing 30 years ago, yeah. um, singing about many of the same issues with the same uh, intensity uh, and purpose that fuels that music. Mm-hmm. I was talking to Tim from A Tribe Called Red at Field Trip Festival a mm. couple of days ago on the weekend. And I, when I walked up into the conversation, he was talking with somebody about how Thunder Bay is racist. And I said, okay, so what's going on here? So Thunder Bay he said, yep, there's been all of that, um, all of the children who have gone missing, like a couple of 14 and 17 year old children who have gone missing, found in the water and the police aren't doing anything about it. And there's mm. no in- inquiry going into that. And I went... I didn't even know that this was going on. Yeah. And um, I was like, okay. And and then, so one thing that we're like learning about with the students is those seven sacred teachings. And, you know, one of them is just making sure that they're not ignorant to things like that, that now that they know they need to do these things. And as much as I do want to celebrate Canada's 150th mm-hmm. anniversary with them, Canada's much older than that. <laughs> so I like, I couldn't, yep. so like I couldn't just yeah. go, you know, like Gord Downey saying Canada's not just hockey and donuts. We yeah. really right. need to look back and evaluate and think, think really critically about this kind of stuff and kids how do you want to see the next 50 years the next mm-hmm. 100 years the next 150 years from now what do you want your candidate to look like because it's going to have to start here and it's going to have to then go yeah and, and go down that way well and it's not just um you know indigenous uh, rights it's right. it's you know canada toronto is now i think the most multicultural city in the world, right? Canada, you know, aspirationally is a leader in terms of how, uh, you know, people from different races and creeds and all of it um, can live well together. But, you know, this idea of, of, um, I mean, for, I keep, the word tolerance keeps coming out and I hate that word. I'm I'm really, that, that it just, tolerance is just not, empathetic enough it's not Mm -hmm. strong enough it's passive aggressive it's like okay i'll tolerate your views Mm -hmm. but it doesn't embrace or celebrate the differences and you know we will not be successful in this journey um as canada uh unless we work at it it's not going to happen because we wish it we have to be very very sensitive about what we're doing and why we're doing it and use your right this 150 to imagine what our future is going to be and then work hard at it really mm-hmm. hard i'm i'm willing to put in the work mm-hmm. i want to do it yeah and when i look around the classroom and i see so many different faces so many students whose you know whose parents are from somalia i've got lots of students from serbia just all kinds of religions and we all get along so well mm. and mm. we all have so much fun and everybody just sees the beauty in each other right 
and that's how and that's this the city that they were that they were raised in Mm -hmm. and it's so nice it's so inspiring and they're all so beautiful every single one of them (laughs) you're just you just give me shivers down both my legs (laughs) (laughs) yay next generation as amazing as you exactly they're for their final project uh they're all doing podcasts so Mm -hmm. uh some of them have chosen greenpeace some of them have chosen amnesty international some of them have chosen gord downey um hannah alper Mm -hmm. do you know who Mm -hmm. that is i do know who that is yeah so so i'm saying look look she's 15 okay guys Mm -hmm. we can we can talk the talk but like well, we are going to talk it still, but we really need to, let's get outside of these walls too. Let's share with other people like really what you've learned and like, what are we going to call the podcast? Like, don't worry, we got this. Yeah, or, yeah. Like, <laughs> don't worry, we got this. <laughs> the future. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> First of all, I'm really sorry for the crap we left you. <laughs> really sorry. Yeah. And now. Thank God you're equipped. That's right. I'm inspired that you can fix it. Yay. Oh. Okay. <laughs> all right. We're going to take it back to the book for a minute. Okay. Uh, you discuss something that I experience, and I think a lot of other people, you call it the imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's just, I guess, someone who has that little self-conscious thought in your head, like, why is why am I here? Or, like, I don't deserve this. Or Yeah, they're going to find out you've been faking it all along. Yeah. I need know. good teachers telling them you're good enough. That's true. First of all, mm-hmm. it's also great to hear successful people who you admire saying that they also experience this. Mm-hmm. It's nice to know you're not alone in it. It's real. Um, so my question is, you were hired as president of Sony Music just as Napster came out. Mm-hmm. And then later, executive director of CBC when they were facing a $171 million shortfall. Woohoo! Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> how did you deal with, like, the level of stress that that mm. coming into those situations must have been? And with that imposter voice, like, how do you yeah. how do you turn that off? Well, one of my sort of ways to deal with the imposter syndrome, because, and he's a boy in my head. He's an, He's a the imposter demon I call him I used to carry him around in my backpack he and he does he he's he's pernicious it's like he's there when you're standing at the podium he's there when you're thanking the academy when they're giving you an award he's mm-hmm. still there you're gonna fail yeah. they're gonna find out but I so I used to bury him with busyness I was just like okay I'm just gonna be so busy I'm not even gonna think about you but at, and, I, and it was hard at the end of uh, after Sony because it was a merger and, you know, he just popped up and ran into my room and sat on my chest so hard I could barely breathe. But at the end of the day, you know, uh, you build confidence only by doing, right? And so sometimes you got to shout it out of your own head. So going into Sony, I mean, I was trying to learn the music business at the same time as literally the carpet was pulled out from under the world. You know, Napster was a, a disruptive little Dickens, and he was, him and his friends, who liked to share music for free, he, uh, you know, they, they it toppled the world as we knew it. Um, so I, 
you know, I worried about it sometimes. I would I would sit in the car or drive to work in the morning thinking, oh, God, I'm, you know, my company's expecting leadership. And, you know, maybe a, a well-seasoned man could have been handling this a little better than me. And, and I would have to give myself a pep talk and stand up to my full height, which is six foot one, and stride <laughs> in, um, you know, exuding, even if I didn't always feel it, as much confidence as I could muster because... The staff, the employees, the artists, they don't want to see somebody, you know, buried in their own, you know, self-worth, esteem problems. They want leadership. They want vision. They want action. They want, they want, okay, here's what we're going to do about it. So for me, it was about team building within the organization. I mean, at Sony, we had, you know, we signed artists, we promoted them, we marketed artists, but we also, you know, had a CD plant and a DVD manufacturing plant, and we shipped and had a distribution arm. So I would, you know, every quarter stand up to President's Breakfast, we called them, and I'd walk through the numbers with all of the staff and say, here's what we're doing, here's where we're going, here's what the numbers are saying. And they didn't need me to, sh- to know the numbers. They knew that, you know, the person beside them just got laid off or they were touching a lot less product going out into the trucks that day. Um, but together, we can reinvent this business. So we had, you know, great leadership um, meetings that could be, you know, the guy who packed and picked it in the back, sitting with the executive and the VP of marketing. And it's like, good ideas come from anywhere. Let's just pull together and see what we can reinvent because the business as we knew it was going the way of the dinosaur. So had to be reinvented. And it's still, you know, 16 years later from when I was there, no less. So 2000 was when I joined Sony, 2016 was the first year that actually the sale of pre-recorded music went up by 3.2%, which is a rounding error in any other business, but thrilling for the record business because <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it meant it was finally starting to turn around with, with you know, lots of new technologies available for people to access and enjoy music. Amazing. Did you use Napster? <laughs> uh, we didn't know any better we didn't know yeah. any better we didn't know what it was doing yeah how old so how old would we have been i like maybe 11 or 12 yeah yeah i was maybe 10 so yeah <laughs> i'm we sorry we were just learning about the internet well it was a gold mine i mean we suddenly you could get anything you wanted at any time you wanted it i mean you know napster was a was an illegal file sharing service at the beginning so yeah, yeah. so you were you were at yeah, risk I- of filling your computer computer with viruses and nasty things we did we um, did, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we you know we tried the business tried and I go through it in the book I do about 10 mea culpas here's what we did right here's what we really did wrong I mean when we started suing the fans that was really a bad idea <laughs> um, although Ca- Canada didn't do that mm-hmm. we sh- we did not do it um but we, yeah, we didn't innovate quickly enough. We thought the, the music business at large thought they could lawyer themselves out of it. They thought, you know, we got a J-Lo record coming next quarter. She's going to save everything and the numbers are going to be right. But it really was not just Napster. It was symptomatic of an industry that had become very top-heavy, very, you know, money. It became more, it became anti-art in a way. Um, you know, developing artists, uh, you know, used to take years and years. Now we were expected to develop an artist in, in six months or eight months and throw it against the wall. If it didn't hit, oh, well, we'll go on to the next thing. So it became short-sighted. Um, 
and yeah, there were there was a lot of ills in the business, which you know I talk about in the book. It's like okay, mea culpa. I was just trying to figure it out. I was like, and who are these people? What's going on? It's crazy to think of like how many artists there are out there that could have developed into someone long lasting, but because of the way the business was at that point, just never worked out for them. Well, it's true. So many, I mean, there's a paragraph in the book and I won't remember all the examples, but artists like, you know, Bob Dylan or Van Mar or, um, I think Bruce Springsteen. Bruce Springsteen yeah. at the beginning, Rush for sure. They never had a number one hit single, but mm -hmm. they kept going. The label believed in them. They believed in themselves more so. And so they developed a fan base and uh, and great successes through other ways. But yeah, it and became. Zeppelin too, I think. And it became very hit oriented. Yeah. yeah, you need to define your own measure of success before you get into anything like that and we certainly had to do that with this and we're and that's what we said we're like we're not checking our numbers all the time expecting 20,000 downloads from like an elementary school teacher and you know what I mean like it's just somebody not in the business like that would but that's not our definition of success but a lot of the times like you know kids too they're like well how many hits on YouTube did it get and how many mm -hmm. followers yeah. do you have and how, how many, many and it's like you know what it doesn't matter because we always said if it's that it, you know, you have to keep consistent. You need to, and then, and then the content will speak for itself. Mm -hmm. So that ho hopefully it will start to put in the work, and if it work. starts to catch yeah. on, and people start realizing, oh, they're onto something that's great. But patience is key. Consistency is key. And then defining our own level of success. And it's if twelve people listen every day and they learn something, great. And mm -hmm. now it's much beyond that, and that's fantastic. And as long as we're enjoying it still. But you know, Absolutely. when when musicians aren't given that opportunity or don't don't set themselves up for that as well, like yeah, the whole reality TV thing is. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, down that was a wrong rabbit hole to go into. <laughs> but, uh, reality TV, I don't mean you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I do want my own reality television show. No, 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 no. Someone no, has no. to die <laughs> now at the end. Yeah. Um, do you practice yoga? I do. Yeah. 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 I like a hot yoga. I like the moksha yoga. I don't do it as much as I should, but I try and do it every day. I have, I'm embarrassed Good. to say this, I have a tape, a Rodney Yee tape that I've been doing. I bought it on VHS. That's how old I am. For probably 20 years. The same tape. I buy tons more. I download lots of different ones, but I keep going back to that one yeah. because I get up in the morning and I go straight to the basement. If I stop and have a cup of tea or check my uh, my phone, I'm done. And then usually I, ha I wake up halfway through it because it's such a body memory. I know the tape so well. Mm -hmm. And then I'm halfway through it. I'm like, oh, I'm halfway over. This is pretty awesome <laughs> and then it also frees my mind to think about other things right I love yeah. getting ideas on the mat mm -hmm. absolutely yeah. yeah there's a couple of different kinds of yoga that is uh that moving meditation one of them is ashtanga mm -hmm. where you have that set series of you get in front and you start and and you do the first the whole primary series and it's the same thing over and over again yeah. until you're not thinking what comes next and what you just do it and mm -hmm. that's exactly what that is yeah free your mind, free your mind. and the rest will fall yeah. <laughs> um, I've been bringing very much the, uh, the yoga and mindfulness into the classroom these days. Um, 
Yeah, you quoted Neil Young in your book saying, we believe that Canada deserves to have the right to clean air, clean water, a clean home, and a clean environment in their constitution. So I think by what what I've seen, I think by incorporating the yoga and the mindfulness and getting out into nature and getting outside with them and not restricting learning into the classroom, they're being a lot more mindful of this, of, mm-hmm. of first starting with themselves mm-hmm. and then moving outwards. Um, I'm seeing a small shift in education in the sense that other educators are starting to realize that this is what children need as well. Instead yeah. of like keeping them inside under these lights and just like hammering math and literacy and assessment yeah. down their throats. The rote and regurgitation. It doesn't work for actually a lot of students but they're yeah. trying to tell us to differentiate and be equitable to the child like mm-hmm. um the schools and this is not throwing the school under the bus but it's their their three things are equity well-being and then one other thing that has to do with pedagogy but it's mm-hmm. usually that the pedagogy part that they're really stressing with the assessment and the literacy and the math and how are we doing with that and eqao is coming up and blah 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 but really school is much more about mm-hmm. that and, mm-hmm. and it's more about learning it's more about learning facts it's learning skills for a lifetime and so I'm more interested in inspiring and shaping kids in this sense and I'm hoping do you think that it's naive to think that like that that schools are that public education is get on board with this or because education is a business that we're not going to see that well, happen. Well, so you put your finger on it. It is, it is a business. And, you know, it's an, also an institution. So institutions are very difficult to change. I know. Um, and these well, measurements, right, that they have, the metrics around success are also sort of quite archaic in my mind. I mean, I had a great public school education. I really, you know, you know, I, I think we're blessed as Canadians to have such a good public school educa- uh, system. But, you know, it's provincial. So things aren't necessarily um, equitable in uh, towns across the country, north or south or east or west. Um, and I think that this whole, whole idea of, uh, you know, reading, writing, arithmetic is, is just so linear right it's like I campaign a lot for music education in the schools because when there's budget cuts and it is a business the arts in it is usually one of the first things to go and I think it's arts I mean music education learning music in school actually makes you a better human but it improves your math scores too it gives you better acuity in terms of team building and, and social acuity as well so for it to be one of the first things I mean you know what? It's really nice that we know the square root of 144, but I can actually use that on my phone now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but what it, what it might be better for me as a human is being able to communicate with other you know students in my class um, musically, in artistically, you know, visual arts, that sort of thing. So I think we need a better balance, and especially as you say, with so many people coming from young people coming from different countries in the world. I mean, expecting everybody to learn the same way by having 40 kids and a desk and a teacher up the front, um, I think it, it just, it's, it's short-sighted. It, it, it doesn't respect the student enough. So. I agree. Putting more money into education would, be the, would be, never be a bad investment. 
yeah, I think you'd be hard pressed to find anybody who would disagree. Would disagree. Mm-hmm. And so, anyways, <laughs> I feel like, and I'm sure you're the same way when you ask the like, your 50% memoir and this, was that a conscious decision? Did you always know that you were going to do this? And I feel like we were all sort of born to do these certain things and we can look back at our childhoods and be like, well, this part of me and these experiences, we've always been kind of on this path and now that we have this information and now that we have these voices, we don't really have any other choice anymore, do we? Yeah. We have to just keep going. We have to use it. I mean, as a mom, right, I look at my son, Duncan, and I fully believe that he came out fully formed, right? <laughs> he knew he's going to be who he's going to be. And my job as a parent is just to expose him to as many different things as I possibly can, you know, sports and physical and music and, and you know, academic and visual arts and all the rest of that, summer camps. Like, just bring it on because only that way will he be able to pick and choose what actually works for him and what lights that passion inside him. So... Yeah, they're, their kids are going to be who they're going to be. But hopefully they're exposed to enough things that they have a good choice <laughs> around it. Amazing. Mm. Okay. Mm. Well, I think... I got one more question. One, okay. Okay. So it's said that men get hired on potential and women get hired on experience. Um, you were lucky enough to get hired on potential when you sort of started out. Uh, is there anything we can do to stress the importance of investing in female potential? Oh, God, we must, we must, we must. I mean, the numbers are, first of all, the numbers are so egregiously bad. When you look at, <clears throat> you know, the numbers of women CEOs, it's still like at 5% in the Forbes companies. You look at the numbers of women in boards, it's still at only about 20%. That You know, the num- chair women on board, it's in the single digits. Women in politics is at like 20%. Despite the prime minister saying, you know, gender equality in, in, in the cabinet because it's 2015, actually the year he did that, I was finishing the book and Canada on the inter-parliamentary um, world scale, the number of women elected to politics was at about, was at number 54. We were tied with Mauritania, which is an Islamic republic. <sighs> Two years later, this year... We're at 64. We, we actually dropped. Um, so other countries are getting better, maybe. Um, but we don't have enough women in politics. We don't have enough women running things. And they say 30% is a critical mass. Two years ago, after the prime minister did the 2015 speech, many, many companies and corporations said, okay, we'll take it on. And the needle hasn't moved. Not a bit it hasn't moved. So if you have only men at the boardroom table, you're limited by your ideas. And this goes for diversity too. You know, if you have old white men sitting around, nothing against old white men. But, you know, it's like eating Wonder Bread all day, every day. Like there's, you know, sourdough and pumpernickel and whole wheat and, you know, <laughs> grains. Like bring it all in. Um, and we'll be better for it. And, you know, having women in politics means that we won't have only men making choices on our sexual freedoms, our reproductive rights, mm-hmm. our daycare, education, the so-called women's issues. Like, that's one thing. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the economy and finance and foreign affairs yeah. <laughs> as well, right? Oh, yeah. Women's voices in all of those areas are so vitally important, especially now. So... Yeah, I was hired on, I just, in many ways, and this is me, I guess, the little imposter syndrome again, you were just 
faking it. They uh, <laughs> maybe I was in the right place at the right time, and but it's still true today that women have to. We have to work harder. We have to jump higher. We have to do more work. We have to juggle more things. I mean, I almost called the book backwards and in high heels because that was the quote you know ginger, ginger rogers. rogers yeah did everything fred astaire <laughs> did except backwards and in high heels yeah. but the only thing and i watched actually a dance uh that they they did and i looked at it and i thought yeah she is doing absolutely everything he's doing the only thing she's not doing is leading and women need to lead more mm-hmm. you know um we have to mentor each other better we have to encourage you i mean I think sometimes women, once they, you know, it's really hard to get to the C-suite, the corner office. It's really hard. You have to work really hard. You have to make sacrifices. The work-life balance thing, which I call an extreme sport, you know, you'll never get it right. You have to make choices. You have to forgive yourself if you make the bad ones. But when you're there, it's not rarefied air where only one can be there. We need to lend a hand, put a hand down and help and pull somebody else up and give them the opportunity because my experience when I hire women I am never disappointed amazing and we just have to thank you so much for seeing some potential in us because that go get them ladies you're over here (laughs) having this conversation with us and a part of us like can't believe it but we're so grateful and we're like it's 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 that absolutely you, you, my pleasure. She's the answer to that question that yeah. you just asked her. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh, so we really, really encourage everybody to pick up a copy of Denise's book, Fearless as Possible, Under the Circumstances. We've both read it twice. We will read it again. <laughs> it will be one of those things that we read over and over again. And you Thank just look you. Denise Donlin up on, you just put that name into Google and they'll find you everywhere, right? Because mm. a lot of things you say, well, where can they find you on the internet? Yeah, you can find me. I'm there. Everywhere. You just yeah. uh, you just put in Denise Donlin. <laughs> Thank you so much. My pleasure. It was a delight. It was a lovely conversation. Thank you. Thank Thank you. And I'm so glad you enjoyed the book. Uh, Yay. It's the best. Yeah. (laughs) And we read a lot of books. You do. (laughs) You're packed with books. I should have brought you some boxes of books. Ooh. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you. And thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next week. Yay. Have you ever watched a futuristic sci-fi movie and wondered, but wait, could any of this really happen? And will I live long enough to see it? That's what our show Hypothetical is about. I'm Carrie Bechet, and on this podcast, we ask what-if questions about the future. Like, what if we could read minds? What if the world's digital data was erased all at once? What would happen if the Yellowstone supervolcano erupted? Then we explore that question two ways, through speculative science fiction and through dialogue with brilliant scientists. The result is a genre-bending narrative that's interwoven with real facts provided by literal geniuses. And, spoiler alert, a lot of the science fiction out there, it's not nearly as far-fetched as you might think. Come time travel with me into the future on Hypothetical. New episodes on Tuesdays available on all your favorite podcast apps. Just search Hypothetical. That's H Y P E R T H E T I C A L.